Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Den tyske forfatter Gerd Mack, han har skrevet den bedste bog, jeg har læst om Europa. Punktum. Det er et kæmpe værk, der hedder Europa, en rejse gennem det 20. århundrede. Og den blev for mange, da den kom for nogle år siden, til sådan en total genoplevelse af den kolossale kulturhistorie, som vi er formet af, og en opdagelse af, hvor europæiske vi i virkeligheden er, og hvor eksotisk det er at være europæisk. Den havde så den svaghed, synes jeg, at den sluttede ved årtusindskiftet. Og på en eller anden måde, så er det 20. århundrede er et sejrende århundrede for Europa, fordi det endte så lykkeligt. Men i det 21. århundrede, som ligesom starter for europæerne med, at vi bliver ramt ligesom amerikanerne af 9-11, og Kina kommer ind i VTO, og Jean-Marie Le Pen kommer til anden runde af præsidentvalget. Vi får lutterproblemer, som vi ikke kan håndtere. Vi skal lave en forfatning for Europa. Det bryder sammen. Vi får finanskrisen, vi får flygtningekrisen. Alle mulige grundkriser, som har det til fælles, at vi ikke har lavet store strukturelle løsninger på dem, men bare lappet dem og lavet som om, at det stadigvæk kører. Den periode var ikke med i Gerd Marx store bog om Europa i det 20. århundrede. Da han så tidligere på året faktisk udgav en bog om Europa i det 21. århundrede, der havde store forventninger i Europa, 2000-2020, der var jeg med det samme fyr og flamme, fordi det er altid mere interessant at læse forfaldshistorier end succeshistorier. Sådan er det bare. Så jeg har glædet mig meget til at tale med vores ven, Gerd Mack, og jeg lover, der kommer også noget håb undervejs. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark, and especially good evening to you, Gerd Mack, who is with us from the village in Friesland, in northern Holland, where you live. Thank you so much for being with us. Nice to be here with you. Thank you. This book that came out in Danish this year, Great Expectations, Store Vendinger, is the topic of our conversation and the starting point. But I really enjoyed it. It reminded me of when I was young that we have, there was this European cultural trend where Lars von Trier mm-hmm. made a movie called Europa. We saw the movies by Kislovsky. We were all reading Kundera. And there was this sense of we are building a cultural community in Europe. I believe now everyone has pretty much become Americanized culturally. But this is really a pleasure to read. I want to recommend it to everyone who's who's with it. It's really, really an enjoyable and enlightening read. What is the story behind this this uh, this book? Yeah, for me personal, it was I wrote uh, a few years ago. I was working on a book about the Amsterdam family. The Six family, very famous family, friends of Rembrandt, and a long story. But around 2015, I was really, I was totally involved in the complicated relations in that family around 1830, and Europe was burning. Immigration crisis. There was we had still the last parts of the Euro crisis, and so on, and so on. So I thought I'm crazy. I'm writing just about this old family. In the reality, in my reality, there is a history. So I finished the book, and immediately I started with uh, this this book, this great expectations book. Um, also, yeah, it it, it was a necessary follow up. You said it already of my book about the first book about Europe, and I never thought I had to write it, but I thought no. So much happened the last 20 years. Uh, I, I, I I I had to write a follow up, so I felt also very urged to to write it. Really, 
um, and, and my teacher as a journalist, an old Dutch journalist, uh, said sometimes uh, every journalist and every citizen has a klein, um, who say that in English, klein a seismographic, seismographic machine inside himself. <laughs> and that was around 2015 shaking like hell. So <laughs> I had to react on that. <laughs> and what you have a very, I think for a journalist, it's a recognizable way of writing for, 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 for but for people writing long historicals, historical books like this, it's it's a it's a original method. Can you describe the method, the the way you engage with people and travel while you're writing the book? No, I'm, I'm always I start with reading, reading like hell. All <laughs> newspapers, all newspapers. So when I travel through countries, I will I will always buy local newspapers, uh, and. Uh, Often I follow local newspapers, go to also to people. And um, so it is always uh, uh, not top down, but uh, yeah, the opposite. Yeah. On the other hand, um, I think it is also very op- uh, important to follow what happened really there in Brussels and to explain that to people. And to uh, first to explain that to myself, which is already sometimes <laughs> rather difficult uh, because it is often a mess up there and nobody understands at the end anything what's happened there. So to to it was also a, a, quite a, a job to get get yeah to get grip on that again. But um, so, and and I think my formula is always traveling, always uh, when I write about a country, always go to the country if possible uh, and uh, and talk with people. And that gives, gives you always and totally, not always, but often a very other, other perspective. But more than, um, I traveled less than in my Europe book. In my Europe book, yes. I traveled really a whole year. Uh, and uh, now I, yeah, I, I traveled more uh, from Amsterdam to Warsaw, from Amsterdam to Copenhagen, from Amsterdam. So I, it were my, it were my trips that I made. It was more plans, uh, and that was also because uh, the kind of book now I wanted to write, and also about the time. And honestly, also. I'm almost 75, and that's in that when I wrote that Europe book, I was just 50, and um, you need really for this traveling, your condition has to be very good. <laughs> My condition is, is still good, but not in a way to travel in a camper from January till December through through Europe through every day to Europe. That was too much, <laughs> so I had to accept that too. The title of, of 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 the book, Great Expectations. Uh, I immediately, when when I thought of when I saw the title, I thought Great Expectations, and then you think disappointment. Then you know it's like when you have great expectations, you expect the disappointment. Why did you choose this title? Because in 1999, when I finished this this book, the first book, and I started new book. In 1999, was really Europe full of great expectations. Everybody yes. expected a better century, and a new century. Uh, perhaps uh, in, in Yugos- former Yugoslavia, there was just a war finished. The country was really 
yeah, there was, was, was a chaos there. But all the other parts where I, everybody told me also stories about how uh, was the New Year's Eve in 1999. And of course, people were a little bit afraid of, perhaps do you remember that, of the so-called Millennium Book. Yes. That was the first Really, first time people were afraid of a, techno of a technological thing, but uh, most of the time it was just fun. And still, just after one and a half year, a uh, little bit more, there was 9-11, and it was totally, the situation was, the mood was totally different. So, and I, I think also when you look at Europe in the 90s, a lot of European projects were also develop, developed in the mood of great expectations. For instance, Schengen, open the yes. borders, but without a common immigration policy. <laughs> uh, the Europe, we have the same money, hooray. Uh, most of, not, not all the countries, but hooray. But without a common financial policy, which is the most difficult. So, uh, And in the, the whole, at the end, all, uh, the 10, 10 countries became also part of the union in 2004, but without really a, a deep and strict evaluation. So uh, after a few years, uh, after 2010, we started to pay the price for all this great expectation with the immigration problems, of course, with Europe problems, with all, but also what we have now, the problem between Hungary and Poland and the rest of the European Union. So the, 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 in this euph euphoric atmosphere, we built, um, let me say, halfway constructions. constructions. <laughs> yeah. And, and that, that is really, um, uh, till now, I think at the end, Europe has really to, to make better constructions. Otherwise, the system will survive some decades, perhaps. But at the end, it cannot go on in this way. <laughs> It's very, this part of history is almost also identical to the Angela Merkel era. She yeah. is like the big leader of, of this period. And I realized the other day, my kids are 19 and 16, that for all the time they can remember, she's been the chancellor yeah. of, 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 of Germany. And then we had an interview with this wonderful German writer, Judith Hermann, in, uh, who wrote uh, Somehow Später many years yeah. ago and has a new book out. We, we had an interview with him about two weeks ago here in the paper. And she had a very interesting description of the Merkel era. She said that she felt that we, we saw the signs of all the disasters that were to come, but they never really affected her life. She said, well, you saw the first floods, the first signs of climate change in Europe. It didn't affect her. You saw moments of, of really migration crisis. It never changed uh, her life. And then she said, well, for the next period, I feel that these signs of catastrophe are going to turn into real disasters. That are, that are that are going to hit us now. And I felt that is pretty much the atmosphere in Europe at the moment, isn't it? I agree with that. Uh, uh, totally. It's typical of Angela Merkel as a story. Uh, when the Berlin Wall uh, collapsed, in, in, in that famous night in 1989, uh, Angela Merkel went to the sauna. 
<laughs> he had some appointment with some friends and she went to the sauna. <laughs> <laughs> and later on, she found out that the wall had collapsed and so on and so on. But this typical miracle, go on steady on <laughs> your own way. And, um, and that was also a good thing, I must say. I see we, the European Union really shaked on this, uh, uh, yeah, on this basics between 2010 and let's say 2019. Uh, and uh, she was also an important uh, stabilizing factor. She was really uh, the, let's say, the, the high school um, uh, director uh, we <laughs> needed. <laughs> Sometimes in your life you need just a, high, a good, uh, steady uh, high school director. <laughs> but the other side of her character was that she didn't she didn't like vision. Uh, she is of course very very clever, but not too far. <laughs> uh, and uh, think about the compromises. So when you think about the, especially the last decade, uh, Germany was. Um, it did, it did not really uh, jump forward. And also the European Union didn't jump forward. And uh, Germany had also nice stories and nice uh, ideas and nice, uh, uh, yeah, nice suggestions. But in the end, the business was the most important thing. Uh, when we talk about the relation to Russia, it was North Sea 2. Business. Uh, when we talk about uh, uh, relation to Hungary, uh, it was business. When we talk about the car industry, it was business. <laughs> so, uh, and um, yeah, I think in, it is true. Um, we could, there could have been a more inspiring leadership from Germany. Um, and um, especially when we talk also about uh, the military part of the European Union, the Germans are really very afraid to take the lead in that. They hate it. Yes. Uh, and I can understand that because of the Second World War and all that, that everything is, is, is in everywhere in Europe has been very traumatic. But uh, we saw it now in Kabul, uh, the European countries are nowhere. Uh, mm. when uh, uh, the, unit, um, uh, the United Nations pulls its power away, we, we, we are really cannot, cannot do anything. And when you look at the figures, Europe is really very weak on its own. And Germany could have taken also in this field, uh, field a more leading role. And uh, uh, they shy away from that. So... Uh, uh, the Merkel area is indeed uh, what what you said. Um, perhaps when historians, after fifty years, look back, it is an area of um, uh, missed chances and missed yes. possibilities and uh, wasted time. And we have to hurry. Yeah, because I think there's. I think it's very. It's a very very interesting period that you're describing. Because when you realize. That, that, that these 20 years, you have the financial crisis, you have the two wars, you have the, the European constitution, you have the immigration crisis, you have so much drama here. And on the one hand, I, I look at it and I say, well, actually the European Union stuck together. Actually this construction that was very fragile and had 
huge internal conflicts and contradictions between South and North, East and West. Actually, they managed to stay together. On the other hand, it also kind of exposed their weaknesses because we, I think European, I think in 50 years, people will look back and say, well, actually you had a chance to make a great difference against climate change in this era, that you could really have reduced emissions uh, in a way that would have helped the next generations. And what we could have done in the last 20 years is going to be very, very difficult, if not impossible to achieve in the next 20 years. Looking back at these 20 years, and you know, we had the, the Rio summit in the beginning of the 90s. You had the Kyoto Protocol yeah. in 1997. You know, we knew it all along. We knew what we had to know. How do you explain that this public knowledge, public debate, and all the political de declarations, they failed so miserably in Europe? I think it fails everywhere, honestly. Yes. <laughs> not, not only Europe. Um, I think with the climate problem, it's a, it's a very fundamental problem um, which cannot be solved only with the usual political methods. Politicians are often not thinking, no, they, I mean, they are very good to think of really about five or ten years, not further. Never. <laughs> uh, uh, and they're thinking always about uh, their own country and their own electorate. And now we have a problem at hand, which is when you feel really the problem after perhaps one or two generations. And perhaps you feel the problem uh, the first time somewhere in the else in the world. It is uh, uh, one of the, I think, the corona pandemic and also the financial crisis, crisis were already forebates of, of this new, very complicated crisis. Uh, we will meet more and more because the world is totally interwoven. We cannot think anymore in states and even not in European Union and in Russia and Asian Union, United States. No, uh, the financial crisis the, the corona crisis nowadays and also the climate crisis are, are, are results of a totally interwoven and interconnected world. Uh, really, uh, globalization till ex extremes. And that means that we need a totally new kind to develop new kinds of politics. And um, European unions is in that way um, really new. There, there, you know, really, uh, I see often European Union, just the old, almost 19th century <laughs> politics coming up. But on the other hand, I see, uh, for instance, around the corona, I see uh, new kinds of politics suddenly rise. For instance, uh, the, 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 the corona policy, the financial policy, the first was again problematic, but then very fast uh, 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 interwoven financial policy was developed, and even Germany. And you know how the Germans and the Dutch are terrible in that way, really, on their money. Even Germany said, no, we have to do this to save the system. 
And the same you saw with now with the the Corona policy, the special special the 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 vaccination policy, that was uh, developed over all over Europe, and even with with big impulses also in the rest of the world. There you saw that uh, a problem really was attacked on a new way. Uh, and uh, as and, and also as it is not country by country, but of course often country by country, but at the end talk as a European problem and even as a global problem. And so uh, uh, I see a lot of mistakes and a lot of problems in the European Union, but I see also a kind of laboratorium hmm. uh, for uh, new, really 21st century politics. <laughs> Yeah, and, and I think it's, what is happening at the European level this past couple of years is very, very interesting. You have Ursula von der Leyen saying, well, Europe has to be a geopolitical power. Yeah. We has, we, uh, and that is an entirely new way of thinking here. Then you have, of course, the disaster in Kabul that you, that you mentioned. You have the European Union talking about global strategic autonomy or strategic Yeah. Uh, autonomy, a kind of liberation project or an autonomy project. I think this project of Europe becoming autonomous, it seems to me realistic on an economic level that you want uh, to diversify your supply chains, you want to invest in European champions. It seems absolutely unrealistic at a military or a defense level. How do you see this um, geopolitical uh, project of Europe? And the problem is, I think, Uh, not that Europe wants to be a geopolitical power. Europe is a geopolitical power, but we yes. don't like that. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know how we don't know how to handle it after so many decades. American protection, and at the end, American not America was not only fighting for us. America was thinking for us when you yes. uh, often and. Uh, Now, more and more, we know we have to uh, fight for our, ourselves and to think for ourselves. And uh, that is uh, uh, the construction of the European Union with so many people, the ship met so many people on the bridge. That is really very um, difficult for a superpower because we saw it already. For instance, uh, last summer with Belarusia, uh, it took, took really weeks before European Union really could react instead yeah. of days and hours. And the same with Ukraine. Uh, it is uh, re European Union has really to develop develop this uh, um, yeah this this not only these possibilities but also this the, yeah the the way the, the the procedures and the way of doing of a superpower and that will take time and again that means also that um, uh, Europe in this field has to, uh, in, in field of foreign policy, has to become more closer and closer. Not because we like it, not because we are, uh, we want to be a big power. No, because we have to, we have to react on the other big powers and to, 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 to find our own place in the new situation in the 21st century, especially uh, uh, towards uh, Russia and towards China. And what, also to the United, United States, more and more. You, of course, we, we lived for decades under the umbrella of our dear Uncle Sam. Yeah. 
<laughs> but our Uncle Sam became a little bit, especially last year, uh, more and more crazy and uh, str did strange things. And uh, now the country is more divided than ever, America, America I mean. And um, that means that, that yeah, we cannot, it is very, I don't hope it, but it is very well possible that we were, are confronted after a few years with a new kind of Donald Trump. And perhaps even a Donald Trump who is less chaotic and more clever. <laughs> and then the United States will be uh, not a stabilizing factor in the world, but a destabilizing factor. And Europe has to, re to react very strong on it. And that that's, I don't like it. And these are scenarios I don't like to talk about, but it is really a possibility. And we have really, as Europeans and as European politicians, who think about it. But I must say, Denmark has the same as the Netherlands. We are small countries. Yeah. And we think, my God, that is too far from us. And we, we, we are not used to think in that way. France and England. They are. They, they know this. They know the tricks, and we have really to learn it. But we have to know that we part of this are part of this superpower, and we have really to learn to think in that way. I think uh, one thing that we said to ourselves during the Trump presidency: we pretty much blamed the growing gap between Europe and America on the person Donald Trump. Oh, no, no. But 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 if you look at What's happened during the evacuation from Afghanistan, I think it's very interesting that Denmark was part of the alliance with America for 20 years, and we were not even notified when yeah. the American troops pulled out. I mean, yeah. it, it was absolutely, you know, if Donald Trump had done that, we would have said, well, he's, he's just a psychopath, narcissistic yeah. liar or so. But this is also a, an America that is not as invested in its European allies as no. it was earlier. And Joe Biden, he speaks more kind and more polite, but he, he, he shares that, 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 world, that worldview. And I was thinking, over the last 20 years, we've been more and more, adapted more and more American culture. I think American culture has never been as dominant in Europe as it is now because of the social media services, the streaming services, the movie stars, the rock stars, the hip hop stars their fashion, their reality show. It's like we live culturally more now in an American world than ever before, but politically we're drifting apart. Yeah. Do you think we need a kind of cultural liberation from America? Uh, I think we need it and it will follow. It will follow. Yeah. We, we, will in, we will, we have to, and we will reinvent ourselves again. Uh, and, uh, but, um, uh, it, it was it, it was not only Donald Trump. This, this whole America from the beginning of this century, America is uh, changing its attention from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Under young Bush was that doing under Obama a lot already. Uh, Donald Trump did it in a very rough way, but yeah. Biden is it is a. Uh, it is all, yeah. It is, it's a, it's a continue, uh, continuity in the American politics to uh, yeah to 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 let Europe what it is, and also 
to uh, put all the attention on China and uh, to protect uh, itself also, to cocoon itself within a new kind of isolationism. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I, um, uh, I see it, for instance, uh, in the, I think you are also, we are journalists reading the New York Times. Yeah. Uh, the New York Times, the last three, four years, is more and more American center. Yeah. Uh, I read the New York Times always to get a lot of news from Europe and the other continents because they had and very, very good uh, correspondents and bureaus in Moscow and everything. And now, for me as European, New York Times is less and less interesting. And I, uh, it's still good newspaper, but but this this global atmosphere is gone. And I think with America as a whole, um, uh, slowly on, it will in the same way. But uh, I think also America will always be uh, uh, very, can be always for a long time as inspiring superpower uh, and uh, with a lot of uh, new and funny ideas uh, and also a warning superpower. This is also possible within all democracies. Take care of, of our own democracies and our own uh, uh, liberal way of life. So uh, it is an, um, an inspiration, but also a warning. Yeah. I love the quote in the last part of the book, you quote Leonard Cohen. And I, I didn't know that quote. Yeah. This, this poem where he says everything is bad about America and he ends by saying, and Leonard Cohen, for those who don't know who's Canadian, yeah. <laughs> and he says, oh, and one more thing, you're not going to like what comes after the American. Oh, I think often about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you you can also say you, but you are not going to like what comes after the traditional America, <laughs> American of the 20th century, because uh, America is changing also. And uh, I, I, within America, People are now fighting really for the soul of the democracy, and yes. we have to support them. But it is a it is a difficult and hard fight, and I hope they win. But it's not sure. No, it's something that I think is very possible, positive, and uh, in in your book is the description of of the development of a new kind of coffee house Europe, the new public sphere that actually yeah. over the that. The events that we mentioned from 2001, the extension of the union, the rejection of the constitution, the Lisbon Treaty, the financial crisis, uh, the debt crisis, immigration crisis, and now Corona, they share the, the fact that they were common European events. Yeah. And that we're actually, what is going on at the European political stage has become something that we in each and every nation state are actually following at, at, at the moment. I think indeed, I called that the European coffee house. Yes. And it was indeed when I toured around uh, and I gave lectures, we were talking about the same, same things. Uh, and uh, uh, just like we're talking now, just like yes. I'm talking to a colleague uh, in, in Amsterdam. Huh? We have we are in the, on the same level of the same things. And that's really a big difference with a few decades before. We were following the Greek elections like it was our own elections almost in the beginning of uh, in, in 2012, for instance. Um, yeah, what what 
will come out of it um, uh, in, in relation to the nation states. Um, I, I think there is a big struggle going on between the nation, national theatre and the European theatre of politicians. Yeah. Uh, uh, Europe is more and more important. Uh, European uh, laws and rules and decisions are, are everywhere. And I see in my own parliament in the Netherlands, uh, sometimes I really see they have a discussion for a day about is something I know. This is all a long time decided in Brussels. <laughs> and, and even, and not on the backward way, really with the parliament and so on and so on. So uh, you are talking, yeah, I sometimes I have the feeling when you have, um, uh, how do you say that, uh, a carousel. And you would always see a young boy sitting with a fire car uh, or a jeep and turning the wheel. <laughs> and that at certain moments, the Dutch parliament is that way because Brussels is the carousel. It's going on already. And it is not because of the manipulation. It is because uh, it is checked by the European parliament. It is the, all kinds of discussions, international and intergovernment dis discussions have gone on. So it is... It had legitimation, but my parliament is still living in the illusion that they are the boss of the world. And it, and then you see also, it is also a fight of theater. Of, uh, uh, and I see often that they push away the European parliamentarians and European politicians and sh shove their national politicians in the front again. Mm -hmm. in, reality, in reality, they are much more powerful. And so... Um, at the end, I hope the whole thing will get becoming some get some balance, and the yeah the the European politicians get the the value and the possibilities they they deserve, and that it means also that the European Parliament needs really to get more possibilities. to still uh, and Parliament like. The parliaments we had at the end of the 19th century, half <laughs> with some power, but not really with the modern possibilities. Uh, and I think when you see how much power uh, is in Brussels and how much power the European Commission has, really, we have to change that. And then you get really also a European political debate. But people follow it more and more. You lost European elections. A lot of people went to the voting booth. It's really, uh, there is there is a strong feeling that this European Union, with all its faults and mistakes, is more and more important. Another another very important topic in your book, which is absolutely related to what we're talking about now, is of course the European immigration policies, and that is, I think, that is such a difficult question, because it seems to me that in order to maintain our human the respect for human rights and the legitimacy of our international conventions our obligations here in europe in order to not be in order to support that in order to keep our democracies intact here and not be overrun by right-wing extremists we must have erdogan almost patrolling the european border and libya patrolling the european border and now also egypt so it's like we made a pact with authoritarians on the border of Europe in order to become democratic, remain democratic and remain, 
and restore respect for human rights here. And I think it really is, even for me as a leftist, it is a real dilemma. Because if, yeah. if we had people knocking on Europe's door, we would have to either be honest and say, well, we cannot maintain this protection yeah. of, of, of spontaneous asylum seekers, or we would have right-wing governments, or really right-wing. So for me, this is a real dilemma. I, I don't know actually how to do. How do you see this dilemma? For me too, honestly, exactly the same. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, it is uh, it is a dilemma, and I think you can uh, you can never solve it. But uh, uh, we when when the European Union would have been a country like Canada, for instance, uh, we could have developed. A, 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 a more or less normal immigration policy. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, we have this dilemma, dilemma, but it is also a totally it is a mess. Uh, uh, and uh, there is not uh, a common uh, border control. There is not a common immigration policy. There is nothing. And uh, that makes the situation worse and worse with a lot, a lot of victims. Uh, and um, I say my, the best way I think would have been, um, and what, what indeed countries as Canada, sometimes also America are doing, that you can ask for, when you are a refugee, you uh, you can ask for yeah the, the, you have, you need also quota, but and I think you have to be as a country you have to be humanitarian and generous, but you cannot do everything. You cannot yeah. solve all the problems, and the, you have to be honest about that. But um, uh, you that the but the best thing is that refugees uh, uh, right yeah, call themselves in. Uh, at the place where they are, at embassies and, and other places, for that you have, you have Europe, as, and like Canada has a system, uh, also in Africa, also in Asia, to where people can come and say, okay, I want to, I'm a refugee, so and so on, so on. With immigration, the same. Europe, Europe needs more people. In fact, European. Yeah. Uh, after ten years, we really need we're needing immigrants. So. Uh, you you have um, you need offices uh, in Africa and anywhere else where people can come and say okay I want to go to Europe and we we, we where they where Europe is thinking can we use them uh, is this a good immigrant and that is another attitude than with refugees but also accept that we also need immigration and give also when people get the possibility to come to Europe. Not all the social security at once. They have to manage themselves. Uh, and sure. when it doesn't, um, when you are not succeeded, have succeeded within, let's say, four years, and you, you want to go back, you can go back. Because a lot of those poor immigrants, we are now illegal guys who are running around to the beaches of Barcelona and everywhere else and selling, selling plastic stuff. They are people who cannot go back. Uh, and really they love to go back and try it perhaps again after some years uh, but uh, uh, that is it is Europe you you are almost dead when you have reached Europe yeah. uh, you have survived in, uh, you never go back 
Dat is dat zo. De, de, create the one, one, one uh, guy who specialized in that said also when people want to go to Europe as an immigrant, they have to put some money. Uh, really, the money for the tour, the tour tickets as a deposito already at that this European office or somewhere in this land. When he wants to go back, his ticket is paid and he can go back. So, so but for all become realistic. They are refugees and they are immigrants. And Europe will also uh, have to cope with more and more immigrants. Uh, don't give false hopes, but really let some accept some immigrants. We can easy with, with, what is it, more than 400 million, we can yeah. easy handle 50,000 or 100,000 immigrants a year. Easy, because also a lot of those immigrants, when they have the possibility, they go back after a few years. That is also the way immigrants are doing. Even the, the elders are immigrants. We went to to Ellison Island in the beginning of the 20th century yes. to, to America. I believe half of them went at the end back to Italy. Immigration is always up and down. So, but yeah, we are now frozen with fear for the other, for the other, and. Uh, uh, 2015 was not good. No. But the, now we are living in the reaction of that, and that's also not good and also not realistic. Do you think we have, you know, one of the dark chapters in European history that people are talking a lot about these days, I believe because of Black Lives Matter in America, is the history of colonialism. And when I look at Europe now, it seems that in order for us to maintain our democracies, we are building fortress, a fortress around Europe. Yeah. Meaning that if you're born within the European Union, you have human rights. If you're born outside of the, the European Union, there's no one to enforce your, yeah. your human right. This inequality of being inside Europe and outside Europe. Also, I'm not saying that is the exclusive result of colonialism, but there is no doubt that, that we benefited in building our modern societies from exploiting other countries and that they are, these countries are outside now. Do you believe that we have some kind of colonial debt that we owe something to the countries outside of Europe that was once colonized by us? And, you know, if you're in Tunisia, you grew up with French schools. You grew up with the French curriculum. And so we kind of raised them in our picture and they say, you can't come here. Do you believe we have a debt towards the non-European countries? For sure. Yes. Yes, it's not only the slavery, but there's also exploitation of my country, of, uh, of Indonesia, for instance. Uh, uh, we have uh, enormous debt, also because we um, yeah, um, brought their societies totally out of balance. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, often we, we regulate stuff, and sometimes... Uh, the, the, especially in the Dutch in Indonesia, did also really a lot of good things, roads, and so on, and so on, schools. But uh, they put also their societies totally upside down. And uh, uh, that, 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 is a, that is a colonial debt. And we have 
always to think about that. And the first thing we have to do is, I, I think, uh, to talk with less arrogance about uh, these kind of countries and the people uh, who have suffered uh, under all these colonial rules. Uh, yeah, I think we have to re-educate ourselves also. And not only with, um, with guilt. I think the guilt is also a kind of arrogance because uh, when we would have done it better, it would have been good. No, <laughs> yeah. uh, we, we shouldn't have been there in the first yeah. place. Uh, but uh, uh, I think it's better to think we were too arrogant. Uh, and we thought in our Western supremacy, we could arrange everything. Kabul is also in that way a very important lesson. What we learned last month there uh, in Afghanistan, uh, you pulled up a country, you helped, uh, you, you brought some uh, yeah, uh, enlightenment, education, and then you left, especially those women, we are again totally down. And also this whole Afghanistan war was so full uh, uh, arrogance uh, and feelings of superiority uh, and uh, the, the damage is done, but we have to really to learn from that. I have one last question for you. If you look back at the last 20 years of Europe that you described so eloquently in your book, which is the single thing from that period that makes you most hopeful about the future for Europe? Ah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and I, the strange is that was still, still 2015 in, in, in Germany, this wave of refugees. Uh, it was very strange because the Germans, after Greece and after the First and Second World War, they want to be good. <laughs> and they were almost euphoric <laughs> when the immigrants came. Uh, but uh, the Germans, most of them stick to their promises. And they really, they, they, they did, did a fantastic job to, to integrate this wave of immigrants and uh, everybody on a personal level I was really impressed how, how they did it. And um, also how they thought about it. Uh, that, that was for me really, I said, yeah, that is the way uh, we cannot uh, invite everybody. We have to be realistic, but we have always to be realistic with a warm heart. <laughs> and that was what that was really it was it was with all the problems that was inspiring. Yes. I think that was very, very moving when I read it because I actually forgot about their welcoming refugees in the stations in Germany. Yeah. And I felt my wife is a refugee, and I felt so delighted to remind yeah. her of, of that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Gerd-Marc. Thank you for taking your time to be with us. It's been such an inspiration talking to you. Thank you. For me too. Thank you very much, Rune. Thank you. Det var så Gerd-Marc. I næste uge skal jeg tale med en fuldstændigt enestående fransk forfatter, som hedder Virginie Despont. Det er mange, mange år siden, jeg som boghandler faktisk ved et tilfælde stødt på hendes første bog, Bes Moi. Den hedder Blodsøstre på dansk og blev aldeles bjergtaget. Der er ingen, der skriver så aggressiv, realistisk og alligevel lejende original en prosa i Europa i dag, som 
Virginie Dupont og hendes seneste bog, Trebindsværket, Vanon Subutex, står som et hovedværk i det 21. århundredes samtidslitteratur. Det er en kæmpe fornøjelse og noget, jeg glæder mig til meget længe. Jeg håber, vi høres ved.